friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 104 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I'm a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me, of course, is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Our mission on Dermosphere is to bring you updates from the latest dermatologic literature so that you have more time in your day to take care of patients, etc., instead of having to spend that time flipping through journal articles. And of course, the quasi-unofficial third member of Team Dermosphere is the Pimping Bell. The Pimping Bell exists to highlight especially noteworthy or questionable content, so when the Pimping Bell rings, take a listen. And by the way, pimping uh, is a term used in medicine <laughs> to describe how senior doctors can, might ask junior doctors a question. That's known as pimping them for historical reasons of which I am unaware. <laughs> but before we get rolling with our discussions of latest dermatologic literature today, I wanted to let you guys know about a couple educational opportunities that are sponsored by the University of Utah Department of Dermatology. So you guys might be aware of a program called Echo. Michelle, I'm sure you've heard of Echoes. Mm -hmm. It's an, originally was an outreach for primary care folks to learn about subspecialties. Specifically, it was hepatology at the beginning. But now there are Echoes in all sorts of different specialties. So whether you're a primary care provider or you just want to hang out with some of the faculty from the University of Utah Department of Dermatology sometimes, these are all virtual and you get some CME, you get like 1.0 CME credit hours by participating, and it's free. And if you want, you can also present some of your challenging dermatologic cases and get some of the folks from the U of U to weigh in. So if you want to do that, we'd be happy to have you. We'll put the link to register in the show notes, and also you can just Google Dermatology Echo Utah, and I'm sure you'll find it. Also, in a similar vein, there are a couple conferences, again, mostly through the University of Utah, Department of Dermatology, that are going on in September in beautiful Sun Valley, Idaho, which is this beautiful Ooh. mountain biking, pastoral fall scene kind of place. <laughs> there's the Intermountain Dermatology Society annual meeting, which is meeting there. And then also there's what we call the Practical Dermatology for Primary Care course, which I am the co-director for. And again, that's sort of intended for primary care providers, but anybody is welcome. This is an in-person meeting. Huzzah! At that beautiful <laughs> Sun Valley location. And again, if you want to register, you can do so. We'll put the link in the show notes. And you can also, again, just Google Intermountain Dermatology Society or... PDPC, University of Utah, and you'll be able to find it. Hope to see you guys there. And now, Michelle will kick us off. All right. So, Luke, we're going to talk about something that's like a drop in the bucket. You know, like there's those words that we use that describe things. There's a word we use to describe drop-like things. Of course, I'm talking about guttate things. When in doubt, go with your guttate. Go with your guttate. So guttate psoriasis is interesting. It's something that can kind of arise suddenly. It can affect young patients more frequently. And it can be sort of a puzzle as to how to treat it. So this is a lovely case series out of the JAD. And this is JAD Case Reports. The authors are Akshay Flora and John Frew. 
And it, the article is entitled A Case Series of Early Biologic Therapy in Guttate Psoriasis, Targeting Resident Memory T-Cell Activity as a Potential Novel Therapeutic Modality. So I think this is a very interesting article. This is out of Liverpool in England. I'm very versed in geography. I'm, it's one of my extreme... No, just kidding. I'm terrible at geography, but I believe that is where that is. So we're going to talk about guttate psoriasis, which, as you know, is a clinical subtype of psoriasis vulgaris. This can present with these smaller thymidus plaques, usually on the trunks and limbs. Dysregulation of the TH17 axis seems to play a central role in driving these lesions through the cytokines that we're going to be familiar with because we have therapeutics that target them, IL-17 and 22 and 23, along with TNF alpha. So of course, we all know those are psoriasis cytokines. Guttate psoriasis can be triggered by infections, of course, including viral illnesses like enterovirus. We've probably all seen cases of COVID-19 triggered guttate psoriasis. And of course, the classical association with streptococcal infection, either pharyngitis or perineal infection. Iatrogenic causes also exist, including beta blockers and antimalarials. With an infectious trigger, usually you're going to have the flare of the guttate psoriasis two to three weeks after the initial infection. You can also see this in patients that are chronically colonized with strep. So some people are strep carriers and they can also present this way. There's an association with HLA-CW0602, that just rolls off the tongue, allele um, in recurrent infection, which might lead to the recurrent outbreaks of guttate psoriasis. Often it does spontaneously remit, fortunately, within 12 to 16 weeks upon inset, onset, but when it is present, of course, it can cause a lot of psychosocial distress. Current treatments can include treating the underlying infectious trigger, which, of course, I always recommend. So when I have especially a young patient with a sudden or thunderclap onset of guttate psoriasis, I'll typically check an anti-streptolysin antibody titer to see if that patient might be carrying strep and might need to be treated for that, or if they might have just recently recovered from an episode of strep. Um, current treatments, again, you can also use the typical psoriasis medications, topical steroids. You can use phototherapy, calcium patriol. Systemic medications have been reported to be useful in guttate psoriasis, but are less commonly used partially because there is no FDA-indicated therapeutic for guttate psoriasis. So if you want to get a biologic denied for a patient, put guttate psoriasis on the application. Um, one thing that you know I have found in medicine is that sometimes we get very specific with things, like patients can have both guttate and large plaque psoriasis, and sometimes detailing both of those things in the note might result in a denial for the coverage of the medication. So if the patient truly has plaque psoriasis, that should supersede all and just call it by that name to avoid confusion. But when you're dealing with true guttate psoriasis, the authors here propose a novel idea, which is trying to intervene with biologics to help prevent that conversion into chronic plaque psoriasis, which can happen in 25 to 40% of patients who have guttate psoriasis. So when we're presented with a patient that does have guttate psoriasis, we do have potentially an opportunity to intervene and prevent that patient from developing lifelong psoriasis. And I think that's do what the authors are attempting to do. I think it's possible. So, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I love the idea of biologic to just make guttate psoriasis go away real fast, like a single shot of buselkumab or whatever, and then you're all done. Like, that sounds great. I don't know if the evidence is there that says it also can help prevent it from converting into long-term plaque psoriasis, though maybe this article will change my mind. Well, and I think that that is an astute observation. This is a small case series. Like many things in dermatology, we can get signals from case reports and case series that then help to found larger studies that allow for us to really uncover the truth about whether or not we can make this difference. 
But pathomechanistically, it does kind of make sense because of the way the immune system works, that if you have something that's triggered by an infection, if you both treat that infection and then sort of sop up the inflammatory mess that's been caused by the reaction, you may be able to prevent hardening into a chronic condition. And I think that we do have evidence that this can be thought therapeutically efficacious from our blistering disorder patients. So if you're use, if you have a patient that presents acutely with new onset blistering disorders, either pemphigus vulgaris or pemphigoid, there's some evidence in the literature that early intervention with biologics, specifically in this case, rituximab, may help prevent hardening of the disease and chronic persistence of the condition. And so I think that because of the way the immune system works, that may be something that you can potentially base on our understanding of science. And then, of course, trials could be, study, could be designed to study that phenomenon. So would a pharmaceutical company want to treat guttate psoriasis or not? Because if we treat it and it goes away, the good news is there's a new indication for their drug. The bad news is we aren't giving people a long-term chronic plaque psoriasis, so they won't need chronic drug. That's a good question. I think that um, hopefully the the scientists and the um, the people working together for access to medication all have in their hearts the right consideration. I think that, of course, when you're looking at a large pharmaceutical company, you have to assume that their greatest motivation is going to be profit. I think it would just depend on how it was presented to the company, to be completely honest. Uh, but I do think that the idea is fascinating, and I think that the authors do a good idea, a good job making a case for the possible um, utility of the therapy. So the kind of way that they propose, the mechanism underlying the progression from acute guttate psoriasis to chronic plaque psoriasis is not completely elucidated, but it is thought to involve resident memory T cells, which of course can be important in the maintenance of multiple chronic conditions. Cutaneous resident memory T cells are a unique subset of T cells in the skin. They express specific cellular markers, including CD69 and CD103. Um, when these resident memory T cells are stimulated by IL-23 via the IL-23 receptor, guess what they produce, Luke? Tell me. IL-17A, IL-17F, and IL-22. And as we know, these are things that can then promote the psoriasis phenotype and other inflammatory cells. They're linked to the cutaneous immunologic memory cells on cutaneous disorders like psoriasis vulgaris, recurrence of psoriasis vulgaris, lesions at the sites of previous disease. Um, later on in the paper, they even describe that you can find these resident memory T cells in areas of previously cleared psoriasis, which may be one of the pathomechanistic um, reasons that you get recurrence of conditions in the same location. And you see this with lots of other dermatoses, including atopic dermatitis has its hot spots it likes to go to, psoriasis has its hot spots. Probably that's the mechanism that you have fixed drug, these resident memory T cells. So I think that they're important, and theoretically they may be involved in that progression from guttate psoriasis to psoriasis vulgaris because of the development of this T helper 17 immunologic memory. And you get a chronic feed forward and feed forward inflammatory cascade that characterizes psoriasis vulgaris. So the authors took four patients who were clinically diagnosed with guttate psoriasis, and they had rapid and sustained clearance with the IL-3 antagonism using rizinkizumab monotherapy. They gave these patients three doses of rizinkizumab and then withdrew therapy with no recurrence of disease up to 24 months in these patients with follow-up. So they are supporting the idea of the role of T-regulatory cells and antagonizing those cells to prevent the progression of guttate psoriasis 
psoriasis to psoriasis vulgaris. And this is sort of a, a novel therapeutic approach for this. And then they go through the presentation of multiple different patients. I won't go into the details of every case, but you can probably guess many of them. The patients generally are young patients. They have an equal number of male and female patients. Half of them had strep, half of them had a different infection or exposure. Um, all of them presented with, I think, very appropriately diagnosed guttate psoriasis, and their clearance photographs are relatively impressive. So I think that guttate psoriasis is, of course, a distinct entity. You can, of course, also have patients that have plaque psoriasis that have smaller plaques. And I did make the mistake in residency of calling that guttate and plaque psoriasis. But like I said before, if you put guttate anywhere on an application for a biologic in general, that's going to get denied because there's no FDA indication for guttate psoriasis as of yet. So I think that that's something to, to be aware of and think about. They then kind of go a little bit more into the depth of the immune milieu that creates psoriasis vulgaris potentially out of guttate psoriasis. So you have initial involvement of epidermal dendritic cells and then potentially high levels of IL-17. Langerhans cells can migrate within the epidermis. That can be impaired both with um, guttate psoriasis and psoriasis vulgaris when you compare that to healthy controls. But migration impairment is less in um, guttate psoriasis and the psoriasis vulgaris patients after they've been treated. The um, Patients that have resolution of the guttate psoriasis also then normalize their Langerhans cell migration in line with the clinical resolution of disease. So it's interesting to show that there's actually a specific immune cell dysfunction that correlates with disease presence and improves when the disease improves. So from a pathophysiologic perspective, you can potentially think of guttate psoriasis as an innate immune stimulation of the psoriasis pathway without necessarily having long-term perpetuation of this feed-forward chronic inflammation. And so that's where they're trying to make the intervention. In between this innate reaction that can be short-lived and a self-limited disease versus the perpetuation of that through chronic feed-forward inflammation. They were able to look at the IL-23 antagonism through this little P19 subunit, which is a nice pimpable content piece. These are widely used in the treatment of psoriasis vulgaris, and they have high levels of clinical efficacy with high levels of POSI 75 and even 90, and significant improvement over the previous medications, such as the TNF-alpha inhibitors and some of the IL-17 inhibitors. With um, IL-13, sorry, IL-23 inhibition, you actually have a decrease of activation and polarization of the T helper cells. So that potentially reduces cytokine elaboration, including IL-17A, 17F, IL-22, and interferon gamma, which are all linked to keratinocyte hyperproliferation and that chronic feed-forward inflammation that happens in psoriasis. So they they proposed you could either use guzelkimab, which is tremphia, because remember it's a goose like the um, Aflac duck. So tremphia, and then rizinkizumab, which of course is skyrizy. Um, the funny thing about rizinkizumab and skyrizy is skyrizy has a Z in it. Rizinkizumab is spelled with an S. It's easy to make that mistake if you're like writing it out. So these have been helpful as therapeutics for psoriasis. Um, they were able to show that even after stopping the medication, the patients retained their improvement, which I thought was impressive. The um, medication also seemed to have some, some effect on the survival of the resident T memory cells within the cutaneous tissue of the survival of the psoriasis patients. So early IL-23 antagonism might actually reduce the formation and the survival of these resident T memory cells. T 
T-memory cells are also upregulated where psoriasis, like I said, was previously present, which is one of the things that probably develops memory for the plaques to go back to the same places. So this kind of change has also been previously demonstrated utilizing ustekinumab, which through the P40 subunit of the IL-12 and 23 receptors can inhibit that inflammatory pathway as well. And so there's support, of course, in the literature for other IL-23 inhibitors, as well as other IL-17 inhibitors like secukinumab, which is Cosentix, and ixikizumab, which is TALTS. Well, I love the idea. Like I said, a few shots of risenkizumab, no more guttate psoriasis, and keep it from converting. That sounds great if it works. So this is kind of a proof of concept study. Of course, as any responsible author should do, the authors advocate for further study, which I agree with. Um, I think that the very most important thing to do when you have a young patient that presents with guttate psoriasis is to ensure that they don't have any chronic infectious process that is propagating the inflammatory response. But I think that the authors do a good job of arguing that potentially early and relatively aggressive intervention can prevent develop of chronicity. And I look forward to further research into this area. Well, Michelle, let me talk to you about something else. And now for something completely different. A little bit, a little bit different. How do you feel about hydradenitis separativa? I think hydradenitis separativa is one of the most important diagnoses for dermatologists to be fluent in the treatment of and comfortable discussing because it's so impactful to the patient's quality of life. Um, I think that it's it's hard to come up with another condition that quite impacts so many important areas of social and physical function than HS. So I think all of us need to learn as much as we can about this condition. That was much more detailed than I would have said. I would have just said hydradenitis separativa <laughs> sucks. And it sucks for a lot of reasons. One reason is because medicines don't really work very well for it a lot of the time. Sometimes they do. There's only one FDA-approved medicine currently for it, adalimumab. So I was excited to hear that secukinumab was also trialed for hydradenitis separativa. Mm-hmm. And then I read this trial and I'm less excited, but still it's something. <laughs> so this is the phase three trials that will likely get secukinumab FDA approved for hydradenitis separativa. This was published in The Lancet. And the title is secukinumab in moderate to severe hydradenitis separativa, parenthesis sunshine and sunrise. Week 16 and week 52 results of two identical multi-center randomized placebo-controlled double-blind phase three trials. Of course, this is a huge group of people who worked on this. The first author is listed as Alexa Kimball and the senior author as Elisa Muschianisi. <laughs> so this was a large multi-center international placebo-controlled trial. Actually, it was two trials with about 1,200 patients. They were all adults, so they were all age 18 or more. And they all had moderate to severe hydradenitis separativa. Though I will say they didn't have super severe HS because participants were excluded if they had over 20 fistulae. So they tried two different doses of secukinumab, 300 milligrams Q4 weeks or Q2 weeks. By the way, the dosing for psoriasis is 300 milligrams weekly for five doses. And then after that, it's Q4 weeks. And the primary endpoint was what they called a clinical response at week 16, which, way, which they defined as a 50% decrease in abscesses and inflammatory nodules. I'm not a studied trial designer person, so I'm not quite sure why this was two identical trials instead of just one big trial. I assume it has to do with like logistics and stuff. In my 
feeling is that it kind of like clouds the data because it's like it was 45% in this trial and 42% in this trial. So like, they just put them together. But whatever. Still nice. I mean, obviously, this is a huge undertaking and expensive and all that. So overall, about 45% of of patients on treatment achieved this clinical response. 45% compared to placebo, where the number was about 35%. So 45% versus 35%. You can see why I was less excited about this after reading the trial, Uh. but still it's better than nothing. The Q2 week dosing does seem better than the Q4 week dosing, as in one of those two trials, the Q4 week group was equivalent to placebo. So not not super awesome. So the number needed to treat is like 10 if we're talking about 45% versus 35%, which is kind of a lot. But it's something. And hydradenitis separativa could you certainly use more things to treat it. And also the trials for adalimumab that got it approved weren't super awesome either. I looked them up just to remind myself, and it was like 50% response in this treatment group versus 28% in this placebo group. But I will say that I've had some patients who do really well on adalimumab. It seems to work actually better in real life than in the trials. So maybe we'll get lucky with secukinumab as well. How about cost? Secukinumab is $14,000 per month if you're dosing Q2 weeks. Adalimumab is about the same. Maybe adalimumab has some more potential adverse events. It's a TNF inhibitor. I usually think of those as a little dirtier than these more targeted things. Perhaps biosimilars could bring down the cost. They're adalimumab biosimilars now. Though I poked around quickly on GoodRx and it looks like the biosimilars are equivalent in price to the brand name adalimumab. So what the heck is the point? So if the number needed to treat is 10, then that means we are spending $140,000 per month as a society, basically, to achieve this clinical response in one person with hydradenitis separativa, which I'm not saying is not worth it, but at least something that, of course, we should be considering. The authors obliquely refer to the rather disappointing results by commenting that HS is a difficult disease to treat and often requires multimodal therapy, which is fair. And they say that it usually requires both medical and surgical approaches, which it does. I think the HS experts, especially in the past few years, have been advocating a lot more procedural approaches to these instead of just relying Mm -hmm. on medicines, you know, excise the sinus tracts, punch excise these things before they start to get worse, that kind of thing. Mm Mm-hmm. And the authors also point out that a high placebo response is a known thing in HS trials. Perhaps it's regression to the mean. Like if you enroll somebody when they're moderate to severe, just by natural disease fluctuation, they're going to be mild a fair amount of the time. Also, they say this is an argument in favor of using placebos, especially if you're studying hydradenitis separativa, because if you just get 30 people with HS and you put them on spironolactone and half of them respond, well, who knows if that was actually the drug or not, which I think is fair. We've previously discussed another article which stated that there should be like three arms, placebo plus drug plus the group where you just do nothing with so that you can really see kind of how it would pan out in real life. So it'll be nice to have something else we can like actually get approved for our patients to try if they have HS. I will say based on these results, I would use adalimumab first. And if they don't respond to go to secukinumab, I don't think there's a pressing reason why you couldn't hypothetically do both, though. I don't think most people are going to do that at the beginning anyway. Remember that secukinumab, just as you said in the last article, blocks interleukin-17. It specifically blocks IL-17A. 
And also remember that HS is associated with a bunch of other stuff. We've discussed HS a lot in this podcast, but remember inflammatory bowel disease, for example, and fungal infections. Apparently also blocking IL-23 with medicines like Rizinkizumab and Guselkumab has been trialed in HS and has not been helpful. So don't use those things. As you might expect, of course, this trial was sponsored by the makers of Secukinumab. I appreciate them sponsoring it. I wish the results were better. You know, I think that part of the challenge that we run up against with HS is it's kind of unlike anything else that we take care of as dermatologists because it creates structures. So psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, you can have lichenification, you can have skin thickening. There are some degrees of permanence to some of that change. But those sinus tracts, once they're there, will always have bacteria in them and will always be a potential source of inflammation and drainage. So we're kind of looking at these as the efficacy of like a bomb defense system for a city that's already been bombed at the ability for this bomb defense system to maintain functional plumbing. Like the damage that's been done has been done. And so then you have to do structural work to fix it. And so I think we need a little bit of a paradigm shift with this condition. One of the things that I think is very important and kind of goes along with what you were discussing with like the echo um, education of our primary care colleagues is helping educate our primary care, our OB-GYN colleagues, our pediatric colleagues as to what HS is, when it's becoming active and when it's an emergency to get to the dermatologist, because the longer it's active and making structures, the more difficult it will be to treat for that patient's lifetime unless something surgical is done to those structures. So I think that that's part of the issue that we run into with HS. I consider it a dermatologic urgency because the longer it's active, the more it's destroying normal anatomy and the more it's making these pathological sinus tracts that will create ongoing and lasting inflammation and scarring unless something significant is done to it. So it it, it is a hard row to hoe. So I think that um, that's also probably part of the reason for this regression to the mean question about the washout effect of efficacy in these studies because it is also a very heterogeneous disease. It has hormonal influences. It has um, effects from environmental pollutants. I think that's something we're going to learn more and more about. And I think that's part of the reason also why it disproportionately affects patients of color and people with um, lower socioeconomic status, because I know personally there's areas in in the surrounding neighborhoods and areas of where I practice where the water quality is compromised, either from oil drilling or from stockyards. And I mean, these are things we know we have water quality issues. And the the number of patients with the severity of disease I see coming from these areas makes me concerned that that might be playing also a role. So there's so much about this disease we don't fully understand. I'm grateful for the attention it's getting now that therapeutics are being directed toward it. I feel like Medical conditions tend to get ignored unless there's a therapeutic specifically for that condition. And then suddenly people have more bandwidth about it. And of course, that's because of money, right? Like that runs the world. And when these big pharmaceutical companies have an interest in the disease because they have a therapeutic to target it, there can be a lot of good that comes out of, okay, we have something to treat this. But I agree with you that we need to make sure it's meaningful also. And I think some of the problem is a lot of us wait until the house is burned down before we turn on the fire hose with this condition. Those are some great points, Michelle. Also, it's kind of interesting that we're trying to co-opt existing drugs that were developed for a different disease and kind of see if they work in HS. I suppose people are probably working on HS-specific stuff. 
I like the idea of using something that exists if it's going to work for something else, but doesn't it seem like we should like figure out what drives HS and then develop a medicine to treat that in some ways, but you're right that it's multifactorial. I like your analogy of bombs and burning houses and things. I will say that the majority of HS patients I have when I like tell them we should probably like cut on you, they're like, no, just give me drugs and washes and creams and things. You're not cutting on this, these areas. So I don't know where the conversation needs to go in order to convince our patients that it's the right long-term decision. I mean, I think just educating them about what a sinus tract is. Like I draw a lot of pictures in my practice to show patients that, you know, this is what's under the skin. This is why it's leaking. It's got bacteria all on the inside. Your immune system is mad at it. So there's inflammation there. There's white blood cells trying to kill these bacteria, but they're in this bunker where they're kind of protected by a biofilm. It's like a, you know, very, I get a little dramatic when I'm explaining things to patients, but I find a little hyperbole makes people um, a little bit, has a little bit of an easier time getting the point across sometimes. And sometimes giving a little bit of anthropomorphization to the bacteria, like, oh, these are the enemies in the tunnels here, and they're protected by this biofilm. It's just, you know, you can give them some education about why you might need to do a different therapeutic. I also think that, you know, of course, we group these things into groups that look like the same thing to us, but I don't know that they're all exactly the same thing. There's a subset of patients, typically women, um, usually um, 30s to 50s, and usually a little bit higher BMI that can have comorbidity of psoriasis and HS. And in those patients, I really do think that the cytokine signaling is probably very similar and using the psoriasis biologics for those patients probably makes sense. But there may be another pathway that's involved with different patients who have HS. Like we all have those patients we treat that don't make sense for having HS, like a patient who's very thin that doesn't have any of the other risk factors. They're not a smoker, but they have this crazy HS out of nowhere. I think that like psoriasis, like atopic dermatitis, these are clusters of conditions that look the same to us, that we put in the same category, but maybe don't behave the same way on a molecular basis. And as we understand better the pathophysiology of these conditions, we can target them more precisely and hopefully have better efficacy. I think a combination of that and intervening with therapeutics or techniques that deal with the structural issues or preventing the structural issues from occurring in the first place is the pathway to success with HS. Good talk. <laughs> I have strong feelings about this because these patients suffer so much. And I, I, I'm like the HS person in Lubbock because I'm one of the like female dermatologists that sees a lot of different age groups and stuff. So I, I have patients from, I have a, I have a nine-year-old with horrible HS. I have patients from nine. I have an 85-year-old with still active HS. This condition can span a lifetime and it can really impact quality of life. Amen. So thanks, Novartis, for trying map for it. Um, hopefully it'll <laughs> sure. work better in real life than it seemed to do in your trials. And we are not sponsored. We're just very interested in taking care of patients. Um, so we're going to talk about something else intertriginous, Luke. So we're talking about HS, which, as we know, tends to happen in the intertriginous areas. So you're probably figuring out where I'm going here. There is a condition that is so hot right now so hot, um, called perialar intertrigo. So this was first described here in this article um, published in October 2021 in Pediatric Dermatology by authors Adrian Sanchez and Christine Chiaverini et al. out of France. They're from Nice, not nice, but I'm sure it was also very nice in Nice, France, and also Lyon and Toulouse. 
and Nantes. I like Nantes. Nantes is actually really beautiful. So they wanted to look at isolated um, cases of this peri-ALR intertrigo in children and teenagers that didn't correspond to a known clinical entity. And when I first heard about this, I was like, isn't that just seborrheic dermatitis? I feel like that's just seborrheic dermatitis. But these authors make a good a good case that this might be something that it's is, is its kind of own entity. And I also read in my preparation for this episode, um, Dr. Heyman's kind of assessment as well of this condition. So if you haven't ever um, read Warren Heyman's like hot takes on different up and coming issues in dermatology, you owe it yourself, owe it to yourself to do that. Warren Heyman is, I think, one of the luminaries of our specialty. Um, let's see, full disclosure, I wrote a book chapter for him about th thyroid disease and cutaneous manifestations of that. Uh, other than that, no conflicts. But I always like his common sense takes on things. And so he has a very, um, I think, grounded and experienced perspective on dermatology. And his perspective is kind of what I agree with with this condition with. Is it a sui generis? Is it something that's its own disease? Or is it a form first of other things that we routinely encounter? And I think as he comes to the conclusion of as well, that the answer is probably both. So some of these cases of peri-ALR intertrigo are probably a form for us of common things that we run into all the time. And some of them might be a condition sui generis all on its own. But let's go in a little, a little bit into the study before I get into the details. So they looked at these isolated cases of peri-ALR intertrigo in children and teenagers that were not corresponding to a known clinical entity. This was a prospective multicenter cohort study done in France from August 2017 to November of 2019. All of the patients were under 18 years of age and they had chronic perinasal intertrigo. They did a standardized questionnaire for all of the patients with a description of the intertrigo and if possible, a woods lamp examination was also done. They found 41 patients that they included. They had originally found about 71 that they enrolled, and then they excluded 30 cases, one because the patient was over 18, and 29 because the perinasal erythema appeared to be part of a well-characterized facial dermatosis, either perioral derm, which was 12 cases, acne, which was seven, rosacea, which was six, sebderm, which was four. So the remaining patients entered the study, these 41 patients, 25 boys, 16 girls. They had a mean age of about 12 years. Their Fitzpatrick skin types were kind of in keeping with the general population of France. So not a whole lot of patients in the type one skin. Type two is about 29%. Type three uh, Fitzpatrick was 41, sorry, 46%. And types four and six were 15 and 3% respectively. They had a minority of patients that had no relevant medical history, other disorders that were concomitant included asthma, psoriasis, atopic derm, and rhinoconjunctivitis. And they had a kind of variety of either treatment or non-treatment in these patients. The clinical characteristics were that this was a erythematous desquamating rash present in the fold around the nasal ala and under the nostrils. And they have good demonstrations photographically of what this condition is. So this isn't that very well demarcated like petaloid peri-alar um, sebderm that you might be thinking of when you think of peri-alar intertrigo. It really is more of an intertrigo picture where you have sort of a line of bright erythema and maybe even a little bit of erosion surrounded by a diffuse erythema that sort of um, fragments out as you fade toward the periphery. They also included the woods lamp photographs showing nice orange um, red follicular fluorescence under woods lamp examination, which they correlate, of course, to Cutibacterium acne's presence and the presence, of course, Luke, of Corporoporphyrin 3. 
which is what makes the Acutobacterium acneus fluoresce. Now, of course, that bacteria is relatively common on the face of adolescence, and that would probably be the area of highest colonization because it is a place where we sort of collect the oil of our face throughout the day as it is an indentation in the skin. Um, I think that they looked at also the therapeutics to see if anything was terribly beneficial for these patients. Many of them had tried things that would be routinely beneficial for other conditions in the differential, including rosacea, seborrheic dermatitis, and acne, and generally lacked response to this. One of the things that characterized these cases of peri-alar intertrigo is that even though it looks like it would be very sore from the photography, it's red, in some cases it's even mildly eroded, they were relatively posse-symptomatic. So most patients actually didn't have any symptomatology, with a minority of patients around 30% having itching, stinging, or pruritus. The... Um, Therapeutics also were not necessarily broadly efficacious. So the authors, I think, reasonably advocate for looking at potential therapeutics that might be beneficial for this condition. Things that were tried include topical corticosteroids, topical metronidazole, topical ivermectin, and emollient cream. This is, of course, something that could evolve into another condition. So I think longitudinal follow-up is necessary for this condition. Um, the patient's did have a preponderance of positive fluorescence indicating high colonization of cutobacterium acnes. About 78% of cases did have active fluorescence in those areas. The, I think, important thing about making this diagnosis is, of course, ruling out other things that can present in the same way. Certainly, one of the considerations I had looking at this peri-alar intertrigo was, could this also just be like a superficial strep infection of the skin? Because in some of these patients, it's quite red and a little bit glazed looking, as, as we know, strep does sometimes like to occur in places that are folds. So I think that that might be something to look into. They had a very small minority of patients in this study that actually had a skin culture. So I don't know that they can completely exclude that possibility. And so I think my understanding of this sort of settles together with Dr. Heyman's in that, you know, this may be a form for us of other disorders. The first way that somebody presents may be with subderma rosacea or periorificial dermatitis. And then there also may be a disease sui generis that's its own thing and might have eventually its own therapeutics. Um, I think that, you know, all of us can keep our eyes open. All of us have seen this. I think every practicing dermatitis can recall um, a visual memory of somebody that has this presentation and probably was pretty difficult to treat because the level of success with the therapeutics in the study was relatively low. What do you think, Luke? Well, when I see a little rash around the nose, especially if it's a little scaly, like this picture, I normally think it's sebderm. Mm -hmm. And then I treat it like it's subderm. And mm -hmm. I honestly can't remember if I've had patients who've come back and you're like, you gave me ketoconazole and it didn't get any better. What the heck? Have you shined <laughs> a woods lamp on it? Maybe there's actually sea acnes in there and you should treat it with antibiotics. <laughs> but who knows? I think I kind of agree that peri-alar intertrigo is a reasonable like morphologic descriptor of a rash mm -hmm. around the nose. And it probably could be caused by various things. My feeling is that sebderm is the most likely, at least in my patient population. But it's worth thinking about the other things they lay out there if it doesn't respond to first-line treatments. They also made some good points in the article about historical evaluation. So they had a very small minority of their patients that were using inhaled nasal corticosteroids. But if you do have a patient who's utilizing those medications, that might be a cue towards the possibility of perioral or perioroficial dermatitis or rosacea because those topical steroids or fluorinated toothpastes can potentially kind of 
cause those conditions to present themselves. Uh, Crisaberol they brought forward, um, and, and Dr. Heyman also emphasized, might exacerbate the pediatric periorificial dermatitis. And I think that that's a little bit because of the vehicle. Um, continued use may ameliorate that somewhat. Demodex mites are something that they also looked at. Um, they weren't really uh, intensively scraping these, ch these children's skin to check for Demodex hypercolonization, but that's another thing that people kind of thought around the options of, and of course, malassezia. So I think that what we're probably looking at here is something that either could be the first presentation of a variety of other dermatoses, or could be its own condition. The topical therapeutics that kind of are proposed to be useful maybe calcineurin inhibitors, um, tacrolimus, pimacrolimus, metronidazole, ivermectin, ketoconazole, clindamycin, things like that, probably try to, trying to avoid topical steroids because if it is that periorificial dermatitis, you might make it worse. And the steroids I haven't found to be terribly therapeutically efficacious for this particular presentation. So I, I do agree with that. You used the term Form frust a couple times. Mm -hmm. F O R M E space F R U S T E. What's it mean? So a form frust, that's basically an atypical or attenuated manifestation of the disease or something that's sort of presenting out of context. It's like an incomplete phenotypic expression of something. So form frust is like you've probably seen a patient that has one plaque of psoriasis somewhere or an adult that has facial psoriasis, which would be out of the norm. So it's an attenuated or atypical manifestation of a condition. I usually think about it in the context of genetic disorders, like a form frust is like it started to become a genetic disorder and then it gave up like 10% of the way in. So you have just like a few angiofibromas on the nose or something instead of the mm -hmm. full-blown tuberous sclerosis thing. Yeah. And then sui generis is also a Latin expression and it, it relates to of its own kind. So it's something that's peculiar to itself or a one of a kind in its own class. So disease sui generis would mean that it's not any of these other things. It's not rosacea, seb, derm, acne. It's its own thing. A disease sui generis. Well, we do want to give a shout out to Dr. Larry Eichenfeld because it was at his presentations at Hawaii Derm that we we're attracted to this particular article about in what is it? Alar intertrigo, peri alar intertrigo. intertrigo, yeah. And also this next one, which is also out of pediatric dermatology, and is titled "The Bumpy Adolescent Nose: Acne Associated <laughs> Angiofibroma-like Nasal Papule." So another oh, I hate these nose thing. Patients so hate these too. Yes. Well, apparently Jorge Roman and Vikash Osa must hate them as well because they're listed <laughs> as two of the main authors out of New York. And this was a retrospective review of 20 adolescent, adolescent patients who had the same phenotype of like bumpy noses and they also had acne. These bumps could be fairly few and small. They could look like more traditional angiofibromas, like fibrous papules, we call them sometimes. Or it could be like quite intense and look more like rhinophyma. In general, they were dome-shaped, skin-colored, or erythematous papules, and about a quarter of the time they were found on the chin as well. Biopsy from five patients kind of looked like angiofibromas, so that's why they call them angiofibroma-like papules. They do cite a previously described case series, really similar presentation, bumpy noses, kids with acne, that referred to this as a type of acne scarring rather than something like an angiofibroma. And they had histologic findings in that study that looked more like scar than 
angiofibromas. In a study, they look like angiofibromas. So whether or not it's the same thing or not, kind of tough to say. Importantly, almost all of these patients were like skin of color patients. So they had 20 patients total. 17 of them were Hispanic. Two were black. One was Asian. They were almost all boys. 17 of them were male. So the authors feel that this angiofibroma-like papules presentation is a sequela of acne, and they say that it may disproportionately affect skin of color. So these are reasons that it's important for us to know about, especially if we're trying to avoid it getting worse or prevent presenting in the first place. We can treat these people with good acne treatments, and then hopefully this won't happen. As a reminder, people have qualified characterized different types of acne scarring so whether or not you believe this angiofibroma like presentation is acne scarring or not you can also think of acne scars as ice pick rolling and boxcar mm-hmm. a couple other tidbits from this article um if you're wondering about multiple facial angiofibromas and you're like isn't that in some kind of genetic disorder yes you might remember that i remember Mentioned tuberous sclerosis just a second ago. So that's got the wrong name of adenoma sebaceum sometimes. It's one of the double misnomers of derm. Another one is pyogenic granuloma. Mm-hmm. Neither pyogenic nor granulomatous. Also, multiple endocrine neoplasia syndrome, men, type 1, can have multiple facial angiofibromas, as can Bert Hogg Dubé syndrome. And we also talked about this form first thing. And they also speculate that it is possible that the mTOR gene could be responsible here because it's responsible for creating angiofibromas in tuberous sclerosis. They also say that aberrant mTOR signaling may be important in the development of acne. I don't normally think about mTOR when I think of the reasons acne shows up, but hey, they say that it has been shown that mTOR gene expression is increased in the lesional skin of acne and that increased mTOR signaling promotes inflammation by increasing sebocyte survival, exaggerated release of sebum-free fatty acids, and C. acne's overgrowth. Hmm. So maybe mTOR is somehow involved. So that's basically the story. If anyone's asking you about it, you can tell them this may be kind of a form of acne scarring, and it can also be a reason to treat more aggressively, especially your darker-skinned patients. So, Luke, we've talked about a couple of things on this podcast episode that are hard to treat. We've talked about HS. We've talked about this peri-alar intertrigo. Another thing I see a lot in my practice because I practice in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas, is melasma. So we have this wonderful article here out of the International Journal of Women's Dermatology. It's entitled New Oral and Topical Approaches for the Treatment of Melasma. The authors are Dr. P.E. Grimes and Dr. D. Quack. And this is out of multiple institutions. I'm very excited to get to review this. So this is published in 2019 in the International Journal of Women's Dermatology. And I thought they did a very nice job covering the variety of therapeutics available for melasma. So they first, of course, discuss what melasma is, which I think everybody's pretty familiar with. And we know this is this hyperpigmentation that often happens in patients with Fitzpatrick skin types three through four. The pathogenesis is complex and somewhat protein, but the things that we know potentially contribute are genetic predisposition, UV exposure, and hormonal influences. Therapeutic interventions almost always have to be multimodal for melasma because the problem itself is multi 
factorial. So something that seems to be a truism in all of medicine is if multiple different things cause a condition, then full treatment of that condition may require addressing those multiple things. And that certainly is the case with melasma. So you have to incorporate photoprotection, some kind of pigment correction, maybe resurfacing procedures, and sometimes addressing the vascular component. The prevalence of melasma varies in different populations, ranging from 1% to 50% in high-risk populations, which would include patients with darker phototypes, people who are pregnant, people um, residing in locations that have a lot of UV exposure, and patients exposed to certain environmental um, exposures as well. The patterns can include centrofacial, malar, and mandibular patterns. The centrofacial is the most common. In some instances, you can also get pigmentation of the neck, extensor arms, and upper back, so non-facial melasma exists. Um, the non-facial areas are most commonly seen in patients who are menopausal. Studies have also shown increased erythema and telangiectasias in the affected areas, suggesting the possibility of a vascular component, and I think that there's good pathophysiologic um, justification for that possibility. It does affect all races and ethnicities, but it has an overwhelming effect on patients with darker phototypes, including patients of Hispanic, Asian, and African descent. Men are a minority of patients, accounting for less than 20% of cases, although I don't know how much of this is men not either being bothered by it or going to seek care for it. So sometimes representation of different dermatoses represents um, the level of concern different populations have over a condition. So that may be an underrepresentation if men aren't seeking care for melasma. The histologic and clinical features of melasma, though, are similar between men and women. One study showed that low testosterone levels might be present in men with melasma, which makes me wonder if they have relatively higher circulating estrogen or female-type hormone levels, which might contribute. Um, they also point out that there is an effect of, of this condition on quality of life, um, psychosocial wellness, emo emotional distress can be generated by the presence of this condition, and patients might feel embarrassed or depressed about their skin or limit social activities. Histologically, we have an increase in the content of both epidermal and dermal melanin. The quantity varies with the intensity of hyperpigmentation. There is not an increase, so no increase in melanocytes. The cells are just enlarged with prominent and elongated dendrites and more abundant melanosomes. So there's not more of them. They're just bigger, faster, and stronger than the other melanocytes. So they're kind of working out at the gym, getting their guns ready. Um, other features include, of course, solar elastosis, increased numbers of mast cells and dermal vasculature with expression of vascular endothelial growth factor, which might play a role in the pathogenesis of this disease. Multiple etiologic factors have been pointed to, including genetic predisposition, UV light exposure, hormone expression, the uh, expression of stem cell factors, C-kit and alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone, which have been also studied in lesional skin. Some studies have shown that patients with melasma, melasma actually express markers that suggest increased oxidative stress in the areas of involvement, and that alterations in the Wnt pathway, which if you remember Schopf-Schultz-Passard syndrome, you will remember that that is a mutation of the Wnt gene. So Wnt is important for a lot of things. I always go, the pirate Wnt, R. So the Wnt gene is involved in Schopf-Schultz-Passard syndrome, which is autosomally recessive. That's why he's going, R, And that is an ectodermal dysplasia in which patients can have hypodontia, hypotrichia. Um, they can have ragged or atypical nails, and they can have an eccrine syringofibroadenoma, which is a fun, fluffy tumor that looks like the lace of a pirate's sleeves, in my personal opinion. And they also tend to have periocular um, African hydrocystomas, which I think of as the eye patch for the pirate. So it is a Schultz-Bassard syndrome. So that's this is Wint. the best mnemonic. <laughs> 
it really just, it writes itself. So the Wnt pathway might have some um, abnormalities in patients who have melasma, which may be important for barrier function. There's also observations of increased solar elastosis, mast cells, vascular defects, barrier dysfunction, and fatty ab acid abnormalities. So it might also be a, photo, a phenotype of photo damage. Lots of different things are commonly used to treat melasma, which we're all familiar with, hydroquinone, azelaic acid, kojic acid, glycolic acid, salicylic acid, and tretinoin. Hydroquinone is the gold standard. And one of the things these authors do, which is, I think, very help, help, helpful, is they go into the derivation of hydroquinone, why people get so freaked out about it, and why sh we should probably all calm down a little bit. So I'll go over that in a second. Most of the time, triple combination therapy is going to have the best result. So the kind of gold standard for that is a hydroquinone, a retinoid, and a corticosteroid. The um, problem with treating melasma in any way is there's relatively universal relapse. This is a condition, again, that has really strong memory. So a patient with melasma can have a beautiful treatment result, go watch a football game out in the sun one day, come back and have all the melasma back again. And that's a scenario I've actually seen play itself out several times. This is so why I recommend nobody ever watches football. <laughs> you know what? I'm going to send a picture of what I look like when I'm watching football to Team Dermosphere so we can use that as a graphic for this because it's hilarious. I look like um, the invisible woman. It's kind of funny. So the therapeutic interventions, of course, need to be multimodal to address all of the different causes of this condition. The first and most important thing is photoprotection. So daily photoprotection is extremely important in helping to treat this condition. Um, many people will report, as I just did, the common occurrence of rapid and frequent relapse after intense UV exposure. So broad spectrum sunscreen has to be utilized for these patients. What's very interesting is they looked at several studies where they just looked at the effect of sunscreens or sunscreens plus visible light protection and had good results. So in one study here by Lekdar et al. in 2007, they looked at broad spectrum sunscreen to prevent colasma in pregnant women during a 12-month clinical trial. So they had 185 patients who were in the study, and only five new cases of colasma were noted in this patient population that had consistent use of a broad-spectrum sunscreen. So occurrence rate of 2.7%, much lower than the 53% previously observed in pregnancy. So I think that sun exposure during key periods of vulnerability is an important triggering event for this condition. We've also discussed previously that visible light could potentially play a role for not just melasma, but other pigmentary problems in the skin, like post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. So mm -hmm. blocking visible light with sunscreen is a good idea. And the sunscreens that do that contain iron oxide. And they're yes. almost always tinted sunscreens. So you want to use a tinted sunscreen if you want to really go after melasma. Exactly. Because visible light, specifically visible blue light, can stimulate something called opsin-3. So opsin-3 can activate the melanogenesis-associated transcription factors and other melanocytic enzymes such as tyrosinase and dopachrome tautomerase. So you can have activation of both gene expression as well as um, enzyme activity that creates melanin synthesis by visible blue light. So tyrosinase and dopachrome form this protein complex that is generated in melanocytes um, in patients that tend, tend to have more um, higher phototypes. And the sustained blue irradiation in patients who have darker phototypes may induce longer lasting hyperpigmentation for skin types three and above. So blue blockers may be more important with patients that have darker phototypes. Traditionally, those patients have not been 
um, a target for education or outreach with photo protection. But that is something that I think the academy and most dermatologists are becoming aware of that we need to offer not just sun protection, but also visible light protection to many of our patients that have higher phototypes. So phototype that includes something to block visible light, such as the iron oxide sunscreen, can be very beneficial, and in fact has been studied. So they actually compared UV and visible light sunscreen to UV-only sunscreen um, in patients, 68 patients who were studied for eight weeks. The UV-only sunscreen had uh, meroxyl SX, titanium dioxide, and octocrylene, along with tinnosorum S and avobenzone, so very broad spectrum. The UV visible light sunscreen had the exact same UV photoprotection regimen plus iron oxide. So the only difference was the presence or absence of iron oxide. Both groups were treated with 4% hydroquinone daily, and they noted significantly greater improvement in the group that was treated with the UV and visible light regimen. So visible light shouldn't be underestimated in its potential role of maintaining or triggering melasma. Another, another study that looked at 40 patients over six months by Bukhari et al. looked at the efficacy of UV visible light sunscreen with iron oxide, and the control group had the same UV sunscreen, but without the iron oxide. And again, they saw a significantly greater reduction in the melasma area severity index or the MAZI score in the patients with the combination visible and UV protection versus just UV protection. So first and foremost, protection. Secondly, they bring up polypodium leucotomus, which is one of my favorite things. So I think it sounds like a spell from Harry Potter. It's polypodium leucotomus. It's very cute. It is a fern that lives on the equator and it protects itself from the equatorial radiation with a kind of combination of antioxidants. It's actually able, through its mechanisms of action, to promote the P53 suppressor gene expression. It also can modulate inflammatory cytokines. It can upregulate endogenous antioxidant systems and block UV-induced cyclooxygenase 2 expression. So a lot of actual phenotypic protections can be given by the polypodium leucotomos. We've talked about polypodium leucotomos in the past on the podcast. Uh, we even talked about any potential interactions. And nicely, there's not any known drug interactions in humans. If you happen to be a very lucky lab rat who is on medazolam and somebody gives you somebody gives you polypodium leucotomos, congratulations, you get to enjoy the medazolam longer because that potentiated the activity of that medication in lab rats. But there have never been any interactions in humans shown with any other medications. That's uh, also been documented to be beneficial in melasma. So there have been randomized placebo-controlled studies of 40 patients that were given polypodium leucotomos versus a placebo. And there was a statistically significant effect of the polypodium leucotomos compared with placebo and improvement of these patients' melasma. Then we have 240 milligrams twice daily, which I think is the amount they'll your patients will usually see on the bottle. Exactly. Exactly. And then they're going to go over kind of the more traditional topical therapeutics, hydroquinone, which inhibits tyrosinase. That is, of course, the rate limiting step for pigment production. Most common side effect of hydroquinone is um, contact dermatitis. It is something that some people get very nervous about. Um, and the reason for that is, of course, first and foremost, concerns of ochronosis in cases of depigmentation. The ochronosis tends to be um, more common in patients who are using high percentage hydroquinone, typically outside of the United States. So ochronosis was first reported in Africa caused by the use of long-term high concentration hydroquinone without good sun protection. And that's that typical caviar-like papules in the cutaneous areas treated with that condition. The um, kind 
kind of ochronosis we see in the United States tends to be a little bit more deeper seated pigmentation that just is more recalcitrant to treatment, but it's not quite as impressive as the um, original reports of the caviar-like papules that you'd see with exogenous ochronosis coming from and a high percentage. resident listeners probably remember what ochronosis looks like on histology. Yes, it has one of my favorite little forms. The banana slugs. Banana bodies! Yes, they do look like banana slugs just thrown onto the tissue, just casually thrown at the histone micrograph. It's very nice. Splat. Exactly. So hydroquinone is... Um, is based on studies that, uh, you know, benzene, which is a leukemogenic agent, is metabolized into hydroquinone. So hydroquinone is a metabolite of, of benzene. Benzene, I would not advocate putting on your skin. Um, that's not a good idea. It's leukemogenic. It has a lot of other problems with it. It's in gasoline. Let's probably not put that on ourselves. Um, so hydroquinone is a byproduct of the metabolism of that condition. The benzene metabolites include hydroquinone, phenol, benzoquinone. These do not exhibit the potency or level of myelotoxic event, uh, effects of benzene. Individuals who are occupationally long-term exposed to hydroquinone have not demonstrated myelotoxic changes. That's been studied both in 1999 by DiCaprio and 2010 by Tse. Hydroquinone has been used and manufactured for over 60 years, and there's been no cases of skin cancer, internal malignancies, or liver damage related to topically applied hydroquinone for skin lightening. But this is why we have to fight the battle to get it available so frequently is that somebody kind of keys into this, it's a benzene byproduct and gets really excited about it. And then it gets withdrawn from the market. And then, you know, people argue about it and eventually it comes back and then it goes away again. So that's the kind of tea on hydroquinone. Um, speaking of tea, tranexamic acid, that was a nice segue. So for oral or topical use, tranexamic acid can be useful. It's a derivative of lysine. It's a fibrinolytic agent, and it does that by blocking the conversion of plasminogen to plasmin. So you might be wondering, what does a blood clotting protein have to do with melasma? And the answer is fascinatingly kind of a lot. So um, whenever you're using tranexamic acid to block that conversion of plasminogen to plasmin, the zymogen, the pre-enzyme of plasminogen to plasmin, um, that also thereby impedes the binding of plasminogen to keratinocytes. That's important because when you do have that binding, keratinocytes actually make prostaglandins that cause hyperpigmentation to happen. You can also get arachidonic acid release, fibroblast growth factor synthesis. All of these things can stimulate melanin synthesis. Um, tranexamic acid also decreases mast cells and angiogenesis, which as we've previously related, are both present in histology and pathophysiologically implicated in the development of melasma. So tranexamic acid has a lot of reasons why it might be beneficial. It is used via a spectrum of delivery routes. You can use it orally topically, intradermally, or microneedled. The current dosing for melasma is much less than what's used to treat menorrhagia or metrorrhagia. So oral dosing for melasma is usually 250 milligrams twice daily as compared to the 3,900 milligrams daily for bleeding diatheses. I think 650 milligrams is the commercially available strength. I believe that's correct. And so sometimes I'll have patients take half of a tablet. Um, We'll check that. Multiple studies have also looked at tranexamic acid in patients with melasma. It's been used a lot in the Asian population and has been evaluated in patients in the United States by Del Rosario et al., where they looked at tranexamic, tranexamic acid 250 milligrams twice daily versus placebo for three months. They had 39 patients that completed the trial, and at three months they had a 49 production percent reduction in the MASI score versus 18% for placebo without any serious adverse events. People worry the most about blood clotting with systemic tranexamic acid. That's something that certainly in the doses used for melasma is not a high risk. I do 
um, historically screened patients that I'm going to consider for oral tranexamic acid for any kind of blood clotting history, any history of personal or familial um, blood clots, personal history or close family history of a lot of miscarriages to try to determine if they carry a baseline risk. In the trial that they did with the oral tranexamic acid with those 40 patients, um, one patient had a DVT. That patient was discovered subsequently to have a familial protein S deficiency and had a personal history of spontaneous miscarriage and a family history of thromboembolic events in two siblings. So I would not have put that patient on tranexamic acid by historical screening. If you don't know the patient's history or you have a concern for risk, you could certainly consider serologic screening for hypercoagulability. The safety profile um, regarding the ability of thromboembolic phenomena induction, of course, would make it contraindicated any, any patient who has a worrisome history, but you certainly could still use it topically, and it's been found to be safe in that way. Other uh, adverse events associated with tranexamic acid include GI discomfort, hypermenorrhea, or allergic skin reactions, alopecia, or mild elevations of ALT. Topical use, of course, quite safe. A study that looked at a 12-week split-face trial, which compared the efficacy of the liposomal 5% tranexamic acid formulation to hydroquinone 4%. Both treatments showed significant clinical improvement without differences, so comparable efficacy between topical tranexamic acid and topical hydroquinone. I like to use topical tranexamic acid as my rest period for hydroquinone in patients, so I'm not using continuous hydroquinone therapy. Briefly, a few other therapeutics they looked at. Melatonin, as we know, this is a created by the pineal gland. It's an antioxidant and free radical scavenger, and it stimulates several antioxidant enzymes. It also inhibits alpha melanocyte-stimulating hormone receptors, which is probably one of the reasons that it's helpful for melasma, potentially. It also can um, stimulate superoxide dismutase and glutathione reductase and glutathione peroxidase, so a lot of antioxidants can be turned on by melatonin. Topical melatonin plus sunscreen showed superiority to patients that were treated without the um, melatonin. So there's some potential improvement in MAZI score reduction with the addition of topical or systemic melatonin. Um, no, wait, hold on. Malondialdehyde, which is a, a measure of oxidative stress, decreased and glutathione levels increased, which is an antioxidant, suggesting improvement in oxidative stress with administration of melatonin. So that's a potential therapeutic. And then glutathione, which is a powerful endogenous antioxidant, has also been looked at. It is a tripeptide of glutamate, cysteine, and glycine. So that made me think of the triforce of courage, which is, of course, power, wisdom, and courage. So the tripeptide of glutamate, cysteine, and glycine that occurs with the glutathione, this is something that has been used both topically and systemically, potentially to improve lightening of the skin via inhibition of tyrosinase, and also because of its ability to skew production of eumelanin to Melanin. Now, one thing that's hit a level of concern for people monitoring safety around these therapies is the use of intravenous glutathione for general skin lightening. There have been articles published by the lay press with severe life-threatening reactions to these infusions, including Stevens-Johnson syndrome and anaphylaxis. So I think as an IV therapy, one would have to be very careful with the glutathione. However, topically and orally, it tends to be very well tolerated. There were studies um, done by Hand dog at all in 2016 that looked at 30 healthy Filipino women that were given a lozenge containing 500 milligrams of glutathione, and they showed a significant reduction in global assessment of melasma, as well as moderate lightning in 90% of patients. Topical um, glutathione has also been used in randomized uh, controlled 
clinical trials and in split face trials and has been shown to improve the um, MAZI index on the treated side with the glutathione. And they're well tolerated without any significant adverse effects, both orally and systemically. Cysteamine is something I'd like to also briefly touch on. Cysteamine, um, hydrochloride, this has got a very long scientific name, beta-mercaptoethylene hydroxychloroquine, bleh, I shouldn't have attempted that, cysteamine, is naturally produced in the human body. It's a degradation product of the amino acid L-cysteine. It is a radio protector, so it actually protects cells from mutagenic and other lethal effects of ionizing radiation by its scavenging effects on hydroxy radicals. And so some studies have looked at cysteamine in patients with melasma. In a randomized controlled study of 40 patients, there was significant improvement in melasma lesions compared with patients treated with placebo. And the um, efficacy of 5% cysteamine is somewhat similar to hydroquinone. It has reduction in MAZI scores. Now, importantly, is the way you use it. So cysteamine, if you've ever used it or smelled it, it does not smell good. It does not smell good because it has a thiol group in it. Now, that actually helps you to know not to leave it on your skin because it's intended to be applied for 15 minutes and then rinsed off. So that is the way that this particular topical is supposed to be used. It is available um, for topical therapeutics. There's some people that are compounding it, and there's a company that makes it commercially as well. That thiol group does make it a relatively unusual fragrance, so it's not something people would like to leave on. And then the authors also point out something called um, pigment correcting serum, which is something that was formulated to address the multiple pathways involved in melasma, including melanocyte activation, melanosome development, melanin synthesis, melanosome transfer, and keratinocyte differentiation and desquamation. So the correcting serum would contain tranexamic acid, tetrapeptides, plankton extracts, niacinamide, um, phenylethyl resorcinol, and Undicyclinol, along with phenylalanine, there were 43 patients that were treated with this pigment correcting serum, and it was compared with 4% hydroquinone. It showed comparable efficacy to hydroquinone in patients with melasma and post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. Two other systemic drugs were looked at really briefly. Methimazole, which as we know is an oral antithyroid medicine to treat hyperthyroidism. This one surprised me because I hadn't heard about this yet. Methimazole can be used in patients with melasma or post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. It is a peroxidase inhibitor, and it blocks melanin synthesis. And absorption studies of topically applied methimazole showed a detectable, um, minimal detectable serum levels of it, so that was not absorbed well enough to cause problems and no changes in thyroid tests. So when it was applied topically to 20 patients with epidermal melasma, they didn't have any changes in serum thyroid stimulating hormone, free thyroxine or free triiodothyronine. And it was well tolerated with minimal side effects. It can be applied to areas of melasma um, but they don't advocate it as a general cosmetic lightening agent because that would be a lot much larger surface area. And then finally, flutamide. Do you remember flutamide? Do you remember learning about the flushing reactions with flutamide, Luke? I remember learning about flutamide. Mm -hmm. So this is a medication that's usually used as a anti-androgen to treat things of like high, prostatic hypertrophy and things like this. Topical flutamide has been looked at in patients who have melasma. It's a non-steroidal anti-androgen. It blocks the action of endogenous and exogenous testosterone binding to the androgen receptor. So they had 74 women that were put into this 16-week trial where they either put on um, once-daily flutamide with 4% hydroquinone or their vehicle. And the hyperpigmentation improved and the MAZI colorimetry stores revealed similar efficacy for flutamide and hydroquinone 4%, but patient satisfaction was higher in the flutamide group. So lots of different therapeutics. Melasma is chronic, it's challenging, it's universally relapsing. 
The mainstay of therapy has to be chronic, consistent, aggressive photo protection. And I'll send you a picture of what my aggressive photo protection looks like. I think that would be hilarious. Um, it needs to be treated with a multimodal approach that incorporates the photo protection, antioxidant treatment, something to lighten the extant pigment, exfoliants, and resurfacing procedures if cases are severe. And there's a lot of oral, topical, and combination therapies available and in development. So I thought this was a very well done review and a nice article out of the International Journal of Women's Dermatology. Yeah, it's a good resource. So I usually start with good photo protection with iron oxide containing sunscreens, tretinoin, hydroquinone 4%, I'll probably add polypodium leucotomus now. And then if those don't work, I have a whole bunch of things in this article I can go to instead. I like it. Well, thanks for joining us today, friends. Today, we learned about using biologics for guttate psoriasis. We learned about secukinumab for hydradenitis separativa. I suspect it's going to be FDA approved fairly soon. We learned about peri-alar intertrigo. We learned about acne-associated angiofibroma-like bumps on the nose. And we learned a whole lot about melasma treatments. Really appreciate you guys, listeners, hanging out with us. We also appreciate all of our members of Team Dermosphere. We've got a bunch of medical students who help us out. They are great. Their names include Morgan Dykeman, Guy Kuseki, Eleonora Marcacci, Michael Birdsall, Aparna Nayak, Nehadeo, Haley Walsh, Angie Huang, and Lara De La Cruz. They're all great. And if you are a faculty member somewhere and see an application from them for residency or for an away rotation, please look kindly on them because they are indeed great. Friends, if you want to hang out with us more, please remember you can hang out with me virtually via the University of Utah Dermatology Echo or in person in September at the Intermountain Derm Society or the Practical Dermatology for Primary Care course. If you want to hang out with us on social media, you can do that too. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're more old school and want to see our website, we have one. It's called dermospherepodcast.com, and it's got our entire archive as well as links to all of our original articles. Not ours. All of the articles that we discuss. <laughs> Guys, thanks a lot for hanging out with us today, and we will see you in two weeks. <laughs>